My guest today is described by one of his clients as a sales expert who practices what he preaches. His training program is by far the most engaging and compelling sales training I've participated during my 10 years of selling. He has a way of gaining buy-in from participants that fosters a fun, enjoyable learning experience. Here's another comment from a different client. He has really opened my eyes to what selling truly means. He is exceptional in what he does, not just for his sales training, for the sales training community, but also his leadership abilities as a whole. His approach is very direct, simple, yet complicated. However, I can honestly say that I never before have learned so many concepts in such a short space of time, thanks to his approach. I'll take one more. If you wanna learn ninja-like sales skills, hire him. He takes a personal interest in his client's success, is expensive, and is very selective. If he agrees to take you on as a client, your life will change. Matt Nettleton, welcome to the podcast. Matt, I understand you're from a place in Pennsylvania called Mechanicsburg. I have to say, never, never came across before. That, <laughs> It's funny because we're a suburb of Camp Hill and just outside Wormleysburg. So I assumed you had heard of us. Uh, now that you put it that way. Got it. Okay. Got I have it, it on yeah. the map right now. Have it just north of uh, Maryland. Just, yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. No, it's a, it's a very small town. Um, you know, typical central Pennsylvania, a lot of manufacturing, uh, a, a lot of agriculture and um, just good solid wholesome people yeah it's it's no that's not the midwest in the states what what do you call that region it's not east coast either it's well it is east coast okay. but it's it, it you know most people when they think east coast they think new york city baltimore philadelphia where you're you know very urban and very but you know you go into new york state upstate new york which is probably bigger than ireland mm -hmm. and it's totally unpopulated except by deer and snowblowers Right. right. Central Pennsylvania is very similar. Yeah. Right. It's this big hole in the middle of Pennsylvania between Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. That's just, there's nothing there. Yeah. So, you know, I grew up in an area where you could walk to school, but it took you a while because school was pretty far away. Mm. You know, and you yeah. could, and then it was just, it was rural community. Yeah. So, that's something that maybe we'll come back to because, again, it's one of those things I see nowadays where, People are driven everywhere and nobody walks to school. And I do think that that finds its way into culture a little bit too. But tell me a little bit about how you got from that rural, small community, how you ended up in this kind of a business. I understand, were you in real estate at one stage? So yeah, I was in real estate. That's not really how I got into sales though. I, um, so I, I played football, American football in high school. And um, had a pretty, pretty nice career um, and got recruited to play college football. And when I played college football, I ruptured all the ligaments and tendons in both my hands. Um, so both my thumbs were basically, I can't open potato chips. It's a very it's a struggle because I can't grasp, I can't pinch. But um, when they started to fix them surgically, they said, hey, by the way, you're not going to be able to do manual labor this summer. And I was like, well, that's, that's what I know. I know, you know, you go out and you find a job unloading trucks, loading trucks, moving heavy stuff. Um, so I answered a job ad. It said, good money, limited effort. <laughs> and a phone number. I thought that's for me. And uh, so I showed up there. I called. They said, well, we do open interviews Thursday morning, 9 a.m. Just show up. So I walked in. There were 42 people in the room. Uh, a guy walked to the front of the office. He said, my name's Jim McVeigh. This is my empty coffee cup. I'm going to go get a cup of coffee. I just want you all to know we sell vacuum cleaners door to door. When I come back with a full cup of coffee, anybody who's still here, I'm happy to talk to you. So 40 people left. Really? And I stayed. Yeah. And a, a guy named Paul Muma stayed. Yeah. And so for that summer, I went out and I sold vacuum cleaners door to door. Oh, that's you. So you really earned your stripes in this business. I, I, I got in it the hard way. You know, mm. people make fun of like insurance people and in, in real estate people. Oh, no. No, when you're a door-to-door -door vacuum cleaner salesperson, 
you get every joke told about you. Mm. And, so and is I, it really it, true in that business where there are door to door and you go in and you spray a little dust on the floor and demonstrate it? Or so that's, that that's actually, it, it, it's, you don't take the dust with you, but there's a, a little attachment you use and you start to suck dust up off their floor. And, and it really doesn't matter how good your vacuum cleaner is, there's dirt left in your house. Um, and, and so they teach you how to do this. And the, and the goal is to, to pull up 50 of these pads filled with dirt. Well, little did I know when I got into selling vacuum cleaners door to door, I'm allergic to cat hair and dust. In the first presentation I went on, I had an asthma attack. <laughs> and so I, I, you know, start sweating. I can't catch my breath. I have no idea what to do. And, and I'm, you know, seven minutes into the presentation. And uh, they said, why don't we do this? Why don't you step out, pull yourself together? And, you know, and, and then we'll, we can get back at it. And I, I said, I appreciate that. I, so I stepped out. Um, I, I stepped back in the house. Now, this was 1987. And uh, they said, listen, we appreciate it. Um, based on the asthma attack you just had, um, we're really not interested. In, and spending $1,500 on a vacuum cleaner is kind of crazy anyway. So count us out. Just put us down as a no. Thanks for your time. I, I said, that's not a problem. I, I, I packed up the vacuum cleaner and I had these little five pads covered with dust and crap from their carpet. And I took it and I flipped it over and rubbed it into their carpet. And they said, what are you doing? I said, well, that, the pad came with me. The dirt was here. Now I'm a college kid. I had no money. I need, the, I need the pad for my next presentation. Yeah. They said, well, we don't want the dirt. I said, well, no, the dirt was here. I said, the pad came with me. The pad's leaving with me. I'm not taking it. I got nothing to do with the dirt. Not mine. I'm not taking it. They said, well, we don't want the dirt. I said, no, you don't want the vacuum. You had the dirt. The only thing that came in was me, the pad, and the vacuum. You've told all three of us to leave. They bought. Oh, man. That's, I'm, I'm telling that's not the first time you've told that story. That is one of those pivotal moment stories. I love it. Well, Absolutely. now here's the funny part. Yeah. I am, I, I have almost zero work ethic, right? I'm not a hard worker, but mm. this was the only way I could make money. And in my family, you don't get money. You go make money, mm. right? Nobody's giving you anything. So I knew I had to go back out. Well, I went out the second time. I had another asthma attack. To the same house, is it? No, different house. Different house. Okay. Different. Same, same process. Hey, we're not really interested. Why don't you step outside, pull yourself together, come back in. She said, hey, based on the, based on the asthma attack, we're not really interested. Spending $1,500 on a vacuum cleaner, crazy. We're not going to do it. I said, that's fine. Let me pack up and go. Put the vacuum cleaner back in the box. Got the five pads covered with dirt from their house. Flipped the first one over. What are you doing? I, I need the pad for my next presentation. Dirt was here. Pads were even with me. Well, we don't want the dirt. No, you don't want the vacuum. They bought. By the end of the summer, I was 36 for 36. I won a scholarship as the best salesman in three states for the summer. And that was all based on, so it's not the asthma attack. The asthma attack is just precipitating the, it's over. It's... it's it's the, so, here's, is it your dirt back? And it, you're bringing focus to the fact of what they don't want and what they need in order to get rid of what they don't so, want. So if you think about it, mm. it was the ultimate Sandler experience. Mm. I went into their house. I became totally not okay. Mm -hmm. We focused almost entirely on their problem, the dirt that was in their carpet. I had mm -hmm. the vacuum cleaner back in the box. I never once said, would you like to buy the vacuum? I did nothing but say, I'm leaving. No, no, you don't want this. You told me you didn't want it. I'm not interested in selling it to you. Could I please leave? And by the time I was done, they were writing a check. Here's what I'm curious about now. Is, and you're right. So as I'm listening to it, and you're kind of saying, look, the sale is over. It's done. And that's when the selling is done. Is... <laughs> At what stage, at when, at what point that afterwards did that light bulb go off in your head when you went, ah, that's what happened? So it was probably the sixth or seventh appointment that I went on. 
and and I was doing pretty well right off the bat. Like everybody else is struggling. Like selling a fifteen hundred dollar vacuum cleaner in the eighties was crazy. It was nuts. Nobody does it. But they started. They they wanted me to go out with with these other people, and and I saw all kinds of high pressure closing techniques. And let me tell you about the cubic feet of air per second that we can move with it. And I'm like, I don't know any of this. I don't want to know any of this. And being lazy, what I realized is if I focused on the only thing that mattered, dirt in the carpet, I got money quicker. Mm. So I, I refer to myself as proactively lazy. Well, do you know what? I, I, I know where you're coming from with that, but anybody who knocks on door after door after door is not lazy. Well, but, but what it is, is I figured out what's the best neighborhood to call in. So I'm not going to knock on any door. I'm going to find mm. the ideal doors, which, by the way, I discovered was mobile homes. Interesting. Because well, they I'm, were I'm willing... curious, I, I would have thought upmarket homes would be yeah. who's going to spend money on on an expensive vacuum cleaner. No, but mobile homes will pay monthly. I just have to get them approved for financing. Got you. So now I now I have a fifteen hundred dollar vacuum cleaner in a twenty five thousand dollar house, and I'm going to make money. When you and say mobile go... homes, are you talking about a home where people live permanently? Because here, this part of the world, a mobile home would be something you would go on a vacation in. No, so a mobile home in America is a trailer that's parked right. permanently. Yeah, got it. So straight off the bat, you'd look at that and you go, they probably don't have a lot of money. Yeah. But my guess is they could pay 25 bucks a month for the next eight years. Mm. Wow. And, and so I, I just, I started to pay attention and, and rather than wander around aimlessly and be energetic, what I did is I found out what's the, what, what zip codes, what neighborhoods have the most sales over the prior 12 months through this office. And I went through all the contracts and figured out where the money came from. And that, then I looked at it and I said, well, that doesn't make sense, but I don't really care. I'm not going to argue with the data. The data is here. And then I went out and ran the call and I said, well, that worked. Maybe I'll do it again. Mm. Now, I didn't know that I would have a second asthma attack, but, you know, so I make a second call in the same neighborhood. I have another asthma attack. It worked again. Now I'm thinking, well, I'm in the right neighborhood, but by God, I hope I don't have to have asthma attacks every day for the next summer. Right. <laughs> Yeah. But I, but I did, and I made good money. Yeah, and and I never had to do it again. Yeah. At what stage did you realize? Were you able to analyze what you were doing? Not replicate it. We got there, but in terms of at what point did you were able to go? Okay, here's what's happening from a psychological perspective. I'm going not okay. Deal is over. Defenses are down. It really, it's really about the pain. Up to that point, it was about the dirt, but you were able to now analyze it at another level. So that, where did that happen? So in 1999, I became a Sandler client. And, and when I became a Sandler client, I was already top 2% in the world selling residential real estate for Century 21. And, and the problem was my son had just been born. And I realized that, you know, now that I have a kid, working seven days a week, eight, nine hours a day. It, it'd be nice to know my kid. It would be nice if my kid knew me. I'm going to have to find a different way to do this. Mm. And so I became a Sandler client, not to make any extra money, but just to increase my productivity. And so in one year as a Sandler client, I made the exact same amount of money, but instead of working nights and weekends and every day, I worked Monday through Friday, nine to five, took Wednesday's afternoon off the golf and, and didn't work any nights or weekends, made an extra thousand dollars working half as much because I, I get systematized so, it. I want to get some insight into this with you, Matt, because my experience of sales, when I started, I was awful at it. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. And uh, so I came from a very different perspective. You were saying I was in the top, you were in the top 2% worldwide. So clearly an A player. What I want to get into the mindset of an A player in terms of how they look at sales training, because at one level you could get, go, well, look, I'm, an, I'm the top 2%. What the hell can you teach me? 
I want to understand your mindset coming into that situation. Was that present or were you looking for just that, that one thing that would give you that edge even to get into the 1%? Well, I, I'm a sports guy. I mean, I, I like sports, whether it's soccer or rugby or football or anything. And, and what I know is the most successful athletes get coached the hardest. Mm. And they don't get coached the hardest on advanced techniques and they don't get coached the hardest on complex issues. They're the best at the fundamentals. The problem for most salespeople, the problem for me, when I was, you know, I sold for Coca-Cola, they're a small soft drink company based in Atlanta. I don't know if you've heard of them. I sold vacuum cleaners door to door. I sold residential real estate. I, I could do it and I could put up big numbers but I couldn't tell you what the fundamentals were. I could only tell you I had a natural ability. I mm. had the ability to talk to a stranger and take money. And my friends would laugh at me because, you know, we'd go out to a bar, I'd, I'd play pool and I'd end up with a bunch of money in my pocket. We, you know, we'd, we'd go to, to buy something and they'd be like, hey, Matt, could you talk to the salesperson? And I'd end up getting a discount because I could talk to people. Mm. But I didn't know why it worked or how it worked. Well, I got to a point in my life where I had reached my ceiling of complexity. And in order to get better, I had to understand what I was doing. And that's mm -hmm. what I was looking for. And that's, you know, I got the, the set of CDs, the best of Sandler live. And I, I just listened to them over and over and over again, because it really spoke to me about, here's what you're doing. You, I think everybody already knows how to do everything we train. They don't know that they are doing it. Uh -huh. They don't know why they would do it. They don't know what order they should do it in. But they're doing it. Okay, interesting. So here's what I'd like to do with this is a lot of people who would listen to this podcast are running teams. Yeah. And they're going to come up again, you know, how do, and, and like you, they probably were very successful, but again, as you've just described, may not know how to break it down as why did it work for them? And I guess more importantly, how to transfer that to team, to the team. Well, how we, if, if I were that sales leader and we were having a conversation, what would you say to me about how I would go about doing that? Right, so I, I'm a big believer that a majority of successful salespeople, regardless of industry, have non-transferable skills. Not because the skills don't transfer, they don't have the language to describe it. Right? Okay. And so okay. what we do really is, is we make things simple by naming them, right? Now, I don't know how you discuss this with your, with your clients, but I tell everybody I work with that we're going to help them define their sales process and define their sales methodology, which are two different things. Mm -hmm. The process is the events that their prospects have to go through in order to buy. The methodology is what they do inside each of those events. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. Cause I would, I, I, I would have that as well, where you have the methodology versus process. The way in my head it worked was that the methodology was the religion and the process was the service. Religion being a set of practices, beliefs, uh, culture, and then the, the service being a particular process. It starts out with welcoming everybody and you go through it and when you leave. Well, but, but if you think about, so I met yesterday with a company, they have 10 salespeople and they're they're a half billion dollar company and they sell a very highly technical engineered product. And I also spent some time with an HVAC company and they work inside people's homes, replacing furnaces and air conditioners. And when we start to break it down, you know, if somebody calls up to the HVAC company and says, Hey, I'm ready to buy the HVAC company doesn't say, great. I need a credit card. We'll be out this afternoon any more than the engineering company does. They both say, hold on. There's a process. We need to come out and see what you want to buy. We need to discover what's actually going on. Then we'll make a proposal. You can decide whether or not you want to do it. And then we can deliver the end product, right? Well, each of those steps, first call, conversation, discovery, 
proposal, close, delivery, you have to be able to execute inside those steps. And you have to realize when you're transitioning. Mm. I was incredibly successful selling vacuum cleaners door to door. I had no idea what I was doing. I was lucky. But when you get to the higher level, when you get to an enterprise, a, a corporate level, you can't rely on luck. You better be able to, to plan, execute, and then debrief. Because if you can't plan, execute, and debrief, you can't improve. Mm. That's interesting you should say that because something I've noticed, and I'd be curious to know if you see this, and it, I think it exists in, particularly in, in, in large enterprise SaaS software companies, I, I haven't seen it elsewhere, but then I don't have that experience elsewhere, is where it's, it's almost like, and I think sales enablement is a lot behind this, is where it's almost like, we'll, we'll try out this methodology this year or this, this process, and next year we'll go with something different because people tell us that doesn't work or we want to freshen things up. And it's like they're jumping from horse to horse. And it's, 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 it's like, a, I can't, it's like they never get, they never get to the end line. Well, was, if you want to be a world-class athlete, you don't switch sports every six months. Mm. I mean, if you want to play, if, if, if you want to play, you know, badminton in the Olympics, mm. you don't practice basketball one year, soccer the next year, and then badminton the third year and hope for the best. You spend a lot of time learning the intricacies of badminton. Mm. There's, a, there's a book called The Sports Gene. And, and The Sports Gene is all about how people get super successful at a small thing. And, and some of it's natural ability. And we see that with the evaluation mm. work we do. Mm. But some of it is being comfortable doing the boring stuff really well. Mm. And I think that's where we really help companies. Because if we can get people to focus on the fundamentals... Mm. But we're not asking them to change sport. We're not asking no. them to change into something else. It's really about how do I, within the given sport, what, how do I set myself up to succeed? But, but it's the equivalent of playing badminton with a particular length racket, mm. with a particular webbing, and then switching. Yes, and now all of a sudden you're playing badminton yes. with a racquetball racket. Yes. We're playing golf with one set of clubs for a year and then coming back to play golf with a totally different set of clubs, yeah. possibly left-handed clubs when you're right-handed. Yeah. And, and, and what we really help, help people understand if we do it right is the language that you choose to describe your sales process and your sales methodology has to be a constant because so much else is changing in the market you need a base that you can come home to. Mm. No, I, I, I get that. I fully, I, the, the issue I often see is that you may come in and describe that language and people are bought into it. But when it comes down to mastering it, you're not always there. Somebody else is there. Somebody else who doesn't have your experience, doesn't have your ability to break things down and describe things. Right. How, how, do you, how do you get past that? So there are, there are going to be times when you don't. Uh, when I was with Coca-Cola, we made fun of one of my bosses. So I was, I was at Coca-Cola for six years. And in six years, I had six bosses. Um, one boss got promoted. His first name was Paul. I'm not going to say his last name, but um, he got promoted to what they referred to as vice president of administrative services which we referred to as vice president of paperwork. Yep. And, and so they, you know, the fact that they had a vice president of paperwork pointed out that everybody who moved up was trying to make their mark on the company. And they would come in and they would say, well, last year you did Miller Hyman or last year you did Carew or last year you did PSS or last year you did Wilson. So they would fly us down to Atlanta. We'd spend four days at the double tree you know, eating the chocolate chip cookies that come on your pillow, which are excellent chocolate chip cookies. And they would teach us something new, stick us back in the field. And 
they would never support it. There was no reinforcement. Our management training or our managers never got trained in the methodology they taught us. So they could never like say, hey, you did that wrong, right? And, and so if you accept a training assignment like that, it's not your client's fault, it doesn't work. Okay. Um, but, just, yeah. But if you, if you get a training assignment, part of your responsibility is not just to deliver to the troops, hey, here's the message, but it's to deliver to the leadership, hey, here's how the message should be supported and reinforced. And if a company is not willing to do the support and reinforcement, then charge double. And this is what I tell my prospects. If you're not willing to support it and reinforce it, I'm going to have to charge double because you're not going to stick around and it's not going to work. So you're not going to give me referrals. <laughs> that's a, so that's an I, interesting way. That is a real pattern interrupt. I like it. Yeah. So you just, you've, you've got to realize that sales training done right is an ongoing yeah. process. Yeah. It takes time. It, it, you have to build the culture. You have to build the language. And, and you really need to establish that, that this is a constant presence. This isn't something that we just do once. Mm. No, that's for sure. And, and, and I'm wondering if you see it. It's something I've experienced occasionally where people will say, I'll, I'll give you a, an example. And it was somebody who was fresh out of college, was in this company, well-known company, maybe a year, bottom rung of the ladder from a sales point of view. And we did a one-day session with them. And it was just basically picking up the phone, getting the attention of a prospect, having a, a short conversation, see if there's something there. And then if there was, passing it on to somebody else. If not, fine. You know, so it's kind of a pre-qualifier. And uh, the, the, the feedback sought from this group was, you know, Usual stuff, what value you get, how did you enjoy it, yada, yada, yada. And one of the questions was, um, how will you put into practice what you learned today? And the response was, uh, that there's nothing I'll put into practice. I already know, Sandler, I, I did a class before. And they had done a one day before. And, and the mentality is, that's it, I've got it. I know it now, I've heard it, I know it. How do you get that from that mentality to one where people understand it is, as you described it, ongoing perpetual investment in growth? Well, to a, to a leader or to a producer, those are two different kinds That's of a fair question. Let's start, with the, well, let's start with the leader because I'm, I do speak to sales leaders and, and I know they face this just as much. They have reps coming to them saying to them, Oh, uh, we don't like that. It's not quite for us. And, and they buy it. They, they absolutely buy it because they don't know any different. Right. So the, when I talk to a leader, um, one of the things I ask them to do is look around the rest of their company and find me any area that runs at 40% efficiency and refuses to learn. Mm. Okay. That, that, that's going to create an awkward moment. Yeah. And it's not that 40% that is bad if that's your close rate. And it's not that 90% is bad that that's your close rate. But just imagine that, you know, one day a week, a guy didn't show up to work at all. And, you know, he's 80% there. I mean, mm. you still wouldn't accept that. Mm. You know, most sales organizations don't run at 40% efficiency. Yeah. And I would suspect by a lot of organizations, it's not even 40%. Close rate is often right. 25%. And, and so now you're, you're, you're telling me that your 25% efficient organizations learned everything they can possibly learn. Mm. And they're executing at maximum efficiency. Mm. Maybe it's a hiring problem. Maybe they're just hiring the wrong people. Uh, and that's a question, you know, when you, every time you talk to a sales leader, I'm sure you ask the same question I do. Did you hire him this way or did you make him this way? That's a nice way of putting it. Mm. So here's something that I came across before. I, I found that when I would lay out to people what was involved in getting from where they were to where they wanted to be, as expressed to me, it was, and, and, and I'm quoting verbatim here, when people say, well, look, we're looking for the low-hanging fruit. We're just looking for the quick wins. And they didn't want to invest the time in doing what it, was going to take to build those skills. 
maybe it's just me. I don't know. I'm just curious if that's an, it's a, is it an attitude that you come across? Maybe it was something in particular sectors. I don't know, but I have come across it. And so I was wondering if you have how you how you deal with that. I have come across it. I think we all deal with it. I, I think the reality is everybody wants the easy button. Mm. Right. I mean, we all. But if reading a book would get us in shape, we'd all have flat abs. Right. I mean, the reality is that if you want to be in shape, you got to go to the gym and not just on January 2nd with everybody else. You got to do it ongoing. Mm. Um, you know, and, and so there are people that believe they can fix their business problems in a one hour day, jump on the table, get excited, you know, change my life forever. But I'm 54 years old. If you think you're changing me in, in eight hours of training, you're, you're I, I want some of what you're smoking because it's yeah. not going to happen. Yeah. And the reality is people don't learn in a seminar. No, they learn when they execute what they've learned in the seminar and then come back and debrief it. Mm. and then go back out. I mean, there, you know, there are people that say, well, I guess I just learned the hard way. And then there are other people who have no idea how they learn because mm. the only way any of us learn is the hard way. That is true. That is true. I mean, good decisions come from experience. Experience mm. comes from bad decisions. Mm. So how do you then, because people will say to you, look, learn from other people's mistakes. Yeah. Can, can you do that? Well, you can start, but you have to be able, again, that goes back to the common language. Can you identify what they even did? Mm. Right. Can you tell, can, can you transfer knowledge from one person in your company to the other, the crafty, wily veteran that's 30 years in the business that knows all the ins and outs. Can he tell you what his steps in this process are and, and how he would do them effectively based on the mm. person you're talking to. Mm. I guess what, what I'm asking, what I'm asking Matt is, can you learn to stay away from the hot radiator without having to touch it? Or do you have to touch it? I, I believe, so this is, this is my belief. I believe that probably two thirds of the population can learn from other people's mistakes because they avoid any type of risk and danger. But the high performers, mm. the high performers, the people that we work with, the people that really, the movers and the shakers and the producers, mm. we'll probably touch that hot stove two or three times because somebody might have turned it off. <laughs> I mean, it's it's funny. This time. Yeah, I remember my mother doing that with my younger sister. And she wanted to teach her that because we had a couple of those old open electrical fires that were popular in the 70s. Uh, you know, the two bar electrical heaters. And she wanted to teach her what was hot. So she would, she would get a, 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 a radiator or we also had one of those um, stoves and, and she would get it so that it was hot, but not dangerously hot. And she would actually introduce her and get her to touch it so that she'd feel it, but it wasn't endangering her just so that she would know what it was so that she didn't have to learn in a way that was going to leave burn marks. Um, and I just thought that was an interesting way of doing it. And I guess now as an adult, it, it does make sense. I do think you have to, um, I think what it is, is that when you hear from other people, as you said, via a seminar is when you make the mistake, it actually makes sense. Whereas if you don't have that context from other people's experiences and stories, then you can make the mistake and not understand why it was a mistake. Right. You can just keep doing the same thing because you don't realize you're making a mistake. You don't you don't have the words to describe it. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Tell me about some of the other careers you've been involved in, Matt, because I know from LinkedIn that I, I, there was uh, there was another company you were involved in that did uh, video stories. It was a storytelling company. Yes. Yeah. So I, I so I, I got I was a Sandler client, sold residential real estate. I've sold soda to large national restaurant chains. Um, I've sold online database marketing uh, with an app exchange partner for Salesforce where, you know, large marketing campaigns. And, and then I, I worked for a startup that I had actually invested in that did um, video communication. Uh, and this was back in 2006, 2007. So right when 
broadband was getting fast enough that you could actually watch video online. And that was interesting because it was really taking stories and transferring them to the internet and using what we referred to as disposable video. So not a video that's supposed to be a centerpiece resume brochure that you'll use for years, hmm. but a message you want to put out today and replace tomorrow and right. put out tomorrow and replace the day after so that you can constantly update. And right. I think that understanding how video works for the modern salesperson is vitally important because it's, it's, it is the next step. Hmm. I was curious when I saw the, there was a, when I clicked on the company and there was a little explainer video and I guess it was your, the, one of the founders was explaining that in the beginning, it was like you took a video, somebody just stood against the wall and spoke and that they realized that that, that just doesn't call it, that there's a story there. And, yeah. and I thought that there's a parallel there between that and face-to-face -face selling that, that just, talking about your product is analogous to putting against somebody against the wall and saying, speak versus right. telling a story. And where do you see the connections between what you learned innately in sales, the, the, the dirt on the floor, for example, that how do you connect that to storytelling? Are, are there parallels? Oh, there absolutely are. I, I think the, the biggest thing, that, that the video company taught me was the vital importance of emotion in decision-making. And if we can get people visually engaged and emotionally hooked, they will take action. Mm. And guess what? At Sandler, we know if you can get people engaged, pendulum theory, mm -hmm. and emotionally involved, pain, loss aversion, possibly gain, although pain is six times more powerful than gain, then we will get action. But getting there is not easy. It's simple, right? You know what you're trying to do. Get the person to talk to you and tell you in an emotional way why it's important that they no longer suffer this. Mm. But you've got to frame the conversation and create the environment that allows that to happen. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. T tell me, um, uh, what I have in mind is um, I'm thinking of a, a, a sales director who is maybe had very mixed experience with hiring people because they've always gone with their gut and that always hasn't worked out. If you were in that position, if you're looking at hiring somebody, what do you do differently that enables you to get the right person on board because the reason I'm coming up with this is that earlier you talked about the importance of selecting the right clients and being, being almost exclusive because if you don't get the right people, then it's going to reflect badly on you. Same is true as hiring. And I'm curious to know what, what is that that you look for? Um, yeah, that, that you know that this is going to be an A player. So it, it, it's funny, and it's, it's whether you're looking for clients, looking for prospects, looking for employees. Um, most people take their shot and then draw a bullseye around wherever the arrow hits. And they go, look, I'm a winner because I hit the bullseye. And you're like, that's not how it works, man. You got to draw the bullseye first. Mm -hmm. And so whether it's a prospect and you need to define the, the industry and the size and the employee headcount and the technology they use and the, you know, whatever it is, mm. or it's a, a client and you need to know what they sell and how they sell it and what they believe about selling, or it's an employee and you're looking for skills and experience and ability and, and, and results and habits and critical thinking, right? Mm. You should have that ideal profile laid out first, realizing that you'll never get the ideal employee or the ideal prospect or the ideal client. But at least if you know what you're looking for, you'll be able to choose what you're willing to live without. So as an employer, if I do, a, you know, we refer to it as the search model. If I do a search model and a job description, 
and I sit down to interview somebody, I'm not saying, tell me about the last time you made quota. Tell me how you won all the championships in high school and how all your grades were A's and you've never missed a quota and you're, you know, and people love you. I'm saying, hey, listen, uh, part of this job is you're gonna have to pick up the phone 500 times a day. And I see here that you've got a time management issue. That, tell me how you manage that. Or, you know, it looks like based on the evaluation that we've done that you struggle when it comes to conflict. Uh, our job actually doesn't involve disagreeing with people in a challenger model type sale. How do you, how do you handle that conflict? How do you manage that? And as an employer, I'm not looking for somebody that gives me the right answer, but I'm looking for somebody that says, you know what, I'm aware of that weakness. Here's how I manage it. Yeah, that, and that's the self-awareness bit as well. Yep. So I want people who are aware of what they're looking for, and I want people who are aware of what they have. Yeah. Talk to me as well about detachment, because we talk a lot about in sales, I'm financially independent, I don't need the business. It strikes me as well that when somebody's hiring a rep, it's almost like it's a sales call on an overeager buyer. The sales manager is there to hire somebody. Therefore, they have their happy years on and they would go through all of the same uh, irrational, I guess, decision-making processes that we do when selling as well. How do you, as a sales manager hiring somebody, put that to one side and, and detach yourself from the outcome so that you can be much more objective about the hire? Yeah, I mean, it, it comes back to what did you decide you were looking for before you started looking, right? Every sales manager goes into a sales interview believing this is the guy. Mm. This is the guy they applied for the job. I hate interviewing. I mean, it's, it's a job I've done. How hard could it be? I'll just get them in here. They'll fit in. They'll just ask the right questions and do the right stuff. We'll be fine. Yeah. But I'll shake them through training. Yeah. Yeah. But they don't have the, the room up ahead of time to know, hey, listen, you know, if you, if you want to play basketball, it helps to be tall. Right? The example I always use is if you were hiring frogs, you would need somebody who was comfortable sitting in a swamp. They would probably need to have a long tongue and they would need to enjoy the taste of flies. <laughs> right? If you don't like sitting in a swamp, if yeah. you don't have a long tongue, and if you don't enjoy the taste of flies, probably not the job for you. Mm. But I should probably identify that beforehand because otherwise I'm gonna assume everybody likes what I like, has what I have, and enjoys what I enjoy. Yeah. That's, that's one of those common human irrationalities for sure. Tell me, um, you work a lot with people helping them discover their own weaknesses, their own blind spots and helping them grow. What have you learned over the years about your own blind spots that have helped you grow? Well, I, I think I've learned really three things. Um, one, I've learned that simplicity is the key to success. And, and that understanding the simplest base element of what you're trying to do is really the key to being able to do what you do well. Okay. Right. So that's, that's the first thing I've learned. Okay. The second thing is um, I've learned that you must always work on those basics. Practice never ends, mm -hmm. you know, and if you think about um, in, in the Sandler network over the past year, what, what we've spent our time talking about internally is how do we get better at doing delivery of content? Now that we can't be live, how do we do it virtually? And how do I upgrade my camera? And how do I upgrade my internet? And how do I upgrade my software? And what do I have to do more effectively? And, and I've heard you talk about it. And I've had conversations with people about it and I've made changes and you've made changes and we've all learned, mm. but we're not learning extravagant, crazy, high level stuff. We're, how do we do the basics really well? Mm. How do we, how do we execute the fundamentals? Because the other stuff, the individual brilliance, the genius that we all have, well, that'll come, but it won't matter if you're not connected to the internet. <laughs> so what I'm hearing is, 
simplicity. Now, is simplicity because there was some one of the comments that I read out at the beginning about you was about simple and complicated, which sounds like a bit of a paradox. Uh, and, and I was curious about that. So it's, it was obviously something that you had had a conversation with somebody about. So what you're saying is that in terms of improvement, that it's about doing the basics and simplifying that and then saying, okay, what's the next level? That you're not trying to overleap yourself. You're just kind of go, because everything is complicated. Good communication looks simple. Good training looks simple, but actually there's a complex set of skills goes into it. But each and, of those and, and skills, that's the paradox. Yeah, but each of those skills can be broken down. Mm. And once you break them down and you master the pieces that you think are the simplest parts, what you discover is you can even get finer in the adjustments. Mm. And the more you practice something, the more it is that you can get better and better at small pieces of it. You know, the, the book that we, that we all work from is you can't teach a kid to ride a bike in a seminar. And, and most of us know how to ride a bike, but most of us could never be a competitive cyclist mm. because we don't know enough about bikes. We don't, we don't know how do you adjust the spokes on a wheel to increase rotation or what's the proper gear ratio based on my leg length. Or which type of clip will help me most on the 25-mile ride that I'm going to take? Or what shape of seat should I buy? Or how high should my handlebars be adjusted? But if you're a competitive cyclist, if that's what you do, you've broken each of those elements down. Mm. And you've looked at each of those things. And you've, you've checked lubricant on your chain and type of shoe clip and what type of tire and what type of rim. And, and, and so as people become more successful, mm. my, I, my I, belief is they have to make the complex yeah. simple and make the simple simpler. Got it. Uh, to extend that as well, it's interesting because you use the bike uh, as, as, as a, an analogy to, to sales. And to, well, it's not, it's, it's to learning and to development and to breaking things down and then getting better and getting better. And as you get better, then you look, look to, to more, but it even goes beyond the bike because I've, you know, I've read, I'm not a cyclist, but I've read people who will even shave their legs or swimmers who will shave their hair just to get that fraction of a second advantage. Yep. So at some level, they're, they're even going beyond the bike. They're looking at the, the space in which the bike operates and how can I increase or decrease drag, for example, and it's that it, it's down to that that tiny tiny level of detail that you would wouldn't even consider when you're starting out because it's not relevant at that stage. Well, it's only, it's only relevant when you're competing with others who are right. And so, if you look at um, and it was used in Atomic Habits, the the English national bike team, um, they looked at the color of paint inside their trailer, the mattress that each of the bicyclists bicyclists slept on. What? The, the massage gun they used. The, I mean, they, they came up with a list of over like 600 items that for each person that was part of their program, they had to customize. Each one was simple, mm. but until you get to the point where the level of return is great enough, you're not going to take the time because, I mean, I'm not a professional cyclist. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. And maybe that's that's the philosophy of simplification as well, is that there's only a small number of things you can really excel at. And it's to identify those. And if you get good at them, there's only a small number of things that you need to excel at to, to be fairly outstanding in your field. How far does that extend, though? I mean, I'm thinking about this simplicity thing because I've often kind of had the thought that our job in sales is to help our clients simplify navigate their way through a process but also to simplify their understanding of the what's in it for them and to take something that can be complex as solutions can be multivariant solutions but boil it down to the essence of in a sentence what does it mean to me and, yeah, and a, maybe it's a philosophy a simplification philosophy 
Well, there, there's a concept called the tyranny of choice. Okay. Where when you're confronted with too many choices, you simply freeze up and you do nothing. Yeah. Right? So you, you can laugh because you walk into a grocery store, there's 37 varieties of deodorant. Well, what do I buy? I don't know which is the right one. You know what? I've used this one forever. I'll just keep getting it. Yeah. Don't even I, think I, about it. Yeah, I, I'm smiling because it reminded me I, when I, I worked years ago in Motorola and we were, they had bought this arm of Bosch, uh, the two way radios. They, a lot of the German police use Bosch radios. So when Motorola bought that business, I was involved in, in, in an aspect of it. And I was talking to this guy. So this was back late, very late 80s. So not too long after the Berlin Wall came down. And this guy was telling me he had grown up in West Berlin, but his family were trapped behind the wall in East Berlin. And he said, you know, he would communicate with them over the years. And they said that their, their wish, their, their, their sole wish in life was to buy a color TV set. All they could get was some dross black and white set that, you know, was on the blink most of the time. And when the Berlin Wall came down, the, and, and there was reunification uh, happened. The West German government gave a stipend. I think it was like, a, I don't know whether it's the equivalent of a thousand dollars or a thousand marks, but it was a, everybody got some you know, spending became, they were able to spend. And they, as I said, they'd all for years, I mean, years, they'd wanted to buy a color TV and they went straight into West Berlin, into one of these big modern, Cove houses in, in which, which had a huge uh, department, you know, with radios and TVs and they had Bosch and Sony and Sanyo and Saba, all of these brands. And literally he, he told me they walked in and saw this wall of choice, just looked at it and turned on their heels and left. They couldn't, they couldn't, they didn't even have a process by which they'd make the decision. They weren't even able to boil it down to three. They just looked at it and went, boom. So, so yeah, I, when, when you mentioned the tyranny of choice, that came into my mind and it, it's, 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 a, it's a real problem. It's a real problem. Well, it's, it's, people don't, haven't learned how to make decisions. It, it, it's funny when you look at most of the things that our clients sell, they're selling to people who don't know how to make the choice to buy. Mm. And so they come up with RFPs that are poorly written or just tell me what your lowest price is or... I mean, they have all these crappy, terrible decision processes and criteria because they don't know what the right way to do it is. And mm. as salespeople, we don't do a really good job developing trust based on presentations, which true. never works, mm. right? And yeah. so we sound like everybody else coming in. Let me tell you why my fizzle stick's the best, right? And, mm. and they look at us and go, well, I don't know about fizzle sticks, but here's our RFP. Why don't you fill it out? Give me your best price. Well, yeah. terrible decision, terrible process. If we were to go in and say, hey, listen, tell me what you're trying to accomplish. And if I can't help you, I'll help you pick between everybody else. It'd be a lot better for all of us. Mm. That requires a particular mindset though. Uh, yeah. How would you describe that mindset that is able to detach themselves from needing the deal to be able to be that more of a trusted guide than traditional vendor. I, I mean, we, you know, financially independent, don't need the business. Mm. Yeah. It's easy and, to and say though, how easy is it to get into that state? Um, it, it depends on what you believe. I mean, I've, I've spent my life as an inverse paranoid. So, an inverse paranoid, you know, paranoid people believe everybody's oh. out to get them. Yeah. Inverse, inverse paranoid believes everybody's out to help them. So I, <laughs> I go through life believing that people just want to talk to me and they want to help me. And yeah. if they want to help me, I might as well help them. Yeah. And so we have a nice, easy conversation. It's no big deal. Yeah. What I thought you said, Matt, when you said it, I thought you said an invoice. <laughs> yeah. Thought, no. Okay. It kind of, in a sales context, it made sense, but it didn't yeah. make sense from knowing you. So yeah, no. <laughs> Oh. Yeah. So it's a, it's an, it's an attitude of abundance or it's an attitude of, um, it's a giving. Well, it's a, it's a giving and it's a belief that my success isn't depending on somebody else's failure. 
you know, I, I, I say all the time, there's more business within two miles of where I'm standing right now than I could ever service in a lifetime. Mm. And, and I think that's true for every business I've ever worked for, including Coca-Cola that had, you know, 90% market share of fountain soft drinks when I was selling fountain soft drinks. And there's more business in the world than I could ever service. And there's more business within two miles of me than I could ever help. Tell me, um, more of a personal question. Imagine that your house is on fire and your family are safe. You, had one, you, could, you could save one object and it's not your phone or your computer, right? Because they're backed up and that's fine. What would it be? I'd probably just grab a beer and watch it burn. I can get new <laughs> material stuff. Ah, come on. <laughs> I really don't. I, I just, nobody's that cool. I just said, uh, hang on a second. Hey, you say to the fire brigade, hang on a second. It's a bit dark. You know, let it burn a bit higher so I can see the dark. So, so here's, a, here's a story from vacuum cleaner sales. Right. My boss, celebrating my success, made a lot of money off me that summer, uh, went out and bought himself a Jaguar car mm. now in the 80s jags were not very reliable um so he had it for about two and a half months um had a, a problem with the alternator took it into the shop picked it up two days later was driving it home and had to pull over because it caught on fire okay wow. he pulled out a victory cigar lit the cigar off the car sat on the side of the road and watched his car burn as the fire department stormed up to the scene. And they're like, what do you want us to do? He's like, put it out, keep it from exploding, make sure everybody's safe. I guess I'm out $40,000. Oh, yeah. What else can you do? There's a, there's a good ad for a cigar in there. You know, when, <laughs> when, when, when life just turns up shit, just, just sit there and smoke. Well, what are like, you going to do? I mean, if, you know, you told me my family was safe. Yep. Told me that my, you know, I'm I'm not grabbing yeah. phones. I can replace all that stuff. It's in the yeah. cloud. No, I just I just wonder because sometimes people have, for example, I have a, a you can't you can see it over there. It's a let me see, get it. It's a camera that my grandfather on my mother's side, my mother's father, um, bought in France after the First World War. So he was a stretcher bearer in the British Army and or in the Red Cross, I should say. But he stayed on in France after the war. I guess just to like, you know, he was a provider to, to send money home to his family, but he bought this and this was him was his lifeline, how he would share pictures of who he was working with, the place he was in and send it back home. And, and my mother gave me that. So that, that you know, there, there are things like that, that I'm sentimental for that I would grab. And, uh, and it's interesting because some people, you know, it, it, they're not sentimental and there's nothing in their house that they would, they would think of that they would, they would grab other than obviously uh, loved ones. Uh, yeah, if, I've got, if I've got my family, I'm good. Yep, that's good. Tell me, if there were a book written about your life, what would you want it? What, what would the title be? What would you want it to say? Um, I, you know, I don't know if there was a book written about my life, what I would want the title to say. I will tell you. Uh, that the last book that I read that really blew my hair back, as it were, that real, I mean, just it was a book called It Takes What It Takes by a guy named Trevor Moad. And uh, it, 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 I read the book. Uh, I, I probably finished it at three in the afternoon. I put down the book. I immediately got on Amazon. I sent a copy of the book to my wife a copy of the book to my son who's in college and a copy of my book to my daughter who's in college. Mm -hmm. And I said, if you read nothing else this year, this is the book you need to read. What was it about the book that got you? What got me in the book was it simply talked about positivity and negativity don't get you anywhere. Positivity might help. Negativity will hurt but simply remaining calm and doing what you're supposed to do and taking that next step is the most important part of life. Okay, that makes sense. I guess what I'm curious about is why did that message resonate with you at that particular time? So 
I think, you know, and, and again, my, my son plays rugby in college and I'm a sports guy and my younger daughter plays soccer and my older daughter used to play soccer. And, and, you know, I, I think life in general, sports in specific, it's really not about success, but it's about how do you manage failure that defines you? Okay. Um, you said failure. Are we talking about failure in the conventional sense where we, 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 we underachieve on an objective? We, whether it's a sports team and we lose or we go to run a marathon and we don't finish? Or is it that? Or can it be applied to, say, life where people are right now going through a, quite a disruptive experience with a global pandemic where their relationship, personal relationships have been disrupted, where their work habits and relationships have been disrupted. It kind of be applied in that context, I guess, is what I'm thinking as well. I believe failure applies to all of them. Mm. And, and I believe failure is best described as any time that you look out and decide that you have not gotten what you wanted. Mm. Right. I, I certainly did not want to get locked in the house with my family for the last 14 months. Mm. You didn't want to get locked in the house with my family either. One of us was more fortunate. You didn't get locked in the house with my family. I didn't get locked in my family either because where I am is a 15 minute walk from my house. I get to leave every morning regardless. <laughs> but what happened, you know, it, you can let that, hey, I'm locked in my house. This is terrible. Yeah. And now you're negative. Yeah. You can get, hey, I'm locked in my house. You know what? This is going to be fun. Well, that's not true either. <laughs> right? Okay. I mean, it's, but it, or you can say, hey, listen, the world just changed. I need to figure out what I need to do mm. next. Mm. And that's it, where you start to think neutrally about yeah. what does it take for me to get to the next step? Yeah. So is it a case then of getting to acceptance quickly and then learning to adapt to that? I don't know that it's acceptance. I think it's picking the terms on which you choose to fight. Oh, I like that. Yeah, yeah. So it's not about just saying this is reality. I have to accept it because that in itself can be depressing. Yeah. What is, is how do I frame that? Well, it's, uh, listen, if, if, if I'm playing rugby, right, and I turn the ball over, I can't stand there and hang my head. I'm going to get stomped, right? That's I got to keep playing. If yeah. I'm, if I'm in sales and I have a two year selling cycle and I lose a deal, I can't just hang my head and not prospect for the next six months. I, you got to get back on the horse. You got to figure out the next step. Mm. So their failure is not final. It's not fatal. It's not permanent nor pervasive. What's the name of that book again? It takes what it takes. It takes what it takes. All right, I'll put a link to that because it sounds like it's, a, it's something we could all do, even if it's a case of, because it's reinforcement. I think what you're saying, most people will get instinctively, intuitively, but we all need reminders and we all need sometimes those stories or we need a different voice to help it re-resonate with us again so that we can pick ourselves up and move on. And keep going. Yeah. That sounds like a great place to leave it, Matt. Because that's neither a positive note nor a negative note. What it is, is something that can take us forward. There you go. I, I like, like it. it. I like it. I like it. Listen, Matt Nettleton, thank you so much for being my guest today. It was great to chat with you and catch up. And I think people will get a lot out of what you're saying as well. You know, I didn't know about the vacuum cleaning. And I think that just if, if, no, if people only listen to that portion of it, and really internalize about what was actually happening, then I think they'll learn a lot. It reminded me actually of a story, and very quickly, and then I will finish it up, was a guy I knew, again, just intuitively, he had a gut sense for selling. He was selling um, radio advertising for a radio station in Ireland, and he was sales manager, because that's what you do, you promote the best salesperson to manager. And there was this particular car dealership where they were trying to get business from and couldn't. The sales reps would try, try again. This went on for a couple of years where they did, this was the biggest car dealership that's this part of the country. 
And so one day, one of the reps exasperated said to my friend, who was the boss, who was the sales manager, said, uh, listen, um, I've tried everything. I can't do it. But you're the you're the you, you're the guru. Everybody looks up to you around here. You were the top performer for so many years. Uh, if you can't do it, nobody can do it. So why don't you give it a shot? <laughs> and I remember him telling me that he was kind of part of him internally was kind of go, oh, shit, really? Was I that good? Can I really do it? And then, of course, he, he couldn't turn it down either. So he told me, he said he went out to this guy and because uh, the guy would always take the appointment, always. You could ring him up, say, yeah, yeah, come out and see me. And then nothing would happen. So he sets the appointment, goes out. And instead of going into the dealership, he walks around the lot where all these cars are. And the, 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 the dealer comes out to him and he doesn't tell him, he doesn't say, hi, I'm Mark or anything. He just starts chatting to the, to the guy and the guy doesn't identify him to the dealer. And he's just looking around. He says, uh, I love this place you have here. He said, um, you know, I grew up in this area and it used to be a field when I was a kid. And it's just wonderful to see it. It's a fantastic business. And of course, the dealer's, you know, chest is out. He's feeling good. And uh, he said, you have a lot of cars here. How, how much would they be worth? And the dealer says, I don't know, maybe four million in total. He says, how much would they be worth in a couple of months time if they don't move? <laughs> the dealer's, well, you know, they probably drop about 10% per annum. He says, yeah, well, what would that be? So he comes up with a figure and he says, hi, by the way, I'm Mark. We have, a, we have an appointment for today. He said, uh, if I can bring more people in your door, do you think you could sell them? Got the business. And that's, you know, it's the, your story reminded me of that. It's an innate understanding of what it is that moves people. It's not the presentation. It's not weird. This it's like, if I can bring them in, can you, after the realization that he has a depreciating asset, it, not even a, a realization, a reminder, because I'm sure he knew it, but a reminder to set the context. And uh, yep. so, yeah. I, 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 I'm going to add your story to that because I, I think it's a wonderful example of when you simplify what sales is all about. You talk about simplification and you boil it all down. That's it. You got it. And that story, I love it. Absolutely love it. Excellent. Man, absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Very love enjoyable. It. Thanks for having me. All right. Me. Thank you very much.